Hello and welcome back to the Chainsaw Buffet podcast. Uh, I swear, um, these these interviews, man, it's it's such a drag. Uh, having to interview Crispin Freeman and uh, everything else, that, you know, I I just I don't know how I, if I can take much more of it. It's just ah, who am I kidding? I love it. Uh, anyway, uh, this week we've got uh, Charlie as usual. He's oh, hello. Hello. No, no, I'm, I, I didn't realize I was supposed to chime in and say, oh, hello, everybody. <laughs> and uh, coming in from his bathroom, probably, is Chad. Well, it's the best seat in the house. Uh, as always, Dylan, who I don't, I, I can't think you've ever missed one of these. I don't think so. No. And, the interviews, yes, but I'm not really a good interviewer, so. Right. And, uh, not the first time I've talked to him, but the first time uh, that he's been on our, on our podcast, uh, Doctor from the Ass Backwards Anime Podcast. Doc, it's great to have you on. Ah, uh, it's great to be on for whatever it is we're talking about. Yes. All right. I, I, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Um, I, I just finished recording an episode like seconds ago. So I'm well, just like, I'm in a haze. That's, that's perfectly fine. Um, God help you. Yes. Yeah, if if you're listening for the Crispin Freeman interview, uh, it's standard operating procedure for us to torture torture you with uh, our regular podcast for a while before actually re- relinquishing the interview over to you. So, uh, good luck uh, finding out where it is and skipping around because I'm not telling you. In the industry, they call this bait and switch. No, there's there's Crispin Freeman on the end of this, but you know, well, yes, you're either, you're either first you have to sit through me. Yeah, you're either gonna have to listen or uh, jump around in the middle of it, and he'll be in the middle of the story, and you know you're gonna miss something. So it's easier just to listen. Or you might just say, "Ah, screw it," because that's what I would probably do if right. I was not on this podcast. Anyway, we've uh, talked so much about uh, Japan and anime and everything else the last several weeks. I thought it'd be time if we switch gears to something completely different and talk about video games. Um, the the big hubbub this week, aside from Portal 2 releasing early, um, has been Wii 2 rumors. Uh, so b- before I launch into my uh, tirade as to why this is a horrible idea, uh, thoughts from the gallery, starting with, uh, I guess, Doc. We'll we'll let you kick things off. Well, I mean, I was not a, I was not entirely aware about this rumors of a new Wii, which is, uh, you know, I'll probably say sure. I guess uh, they would have to do a lot to the to the make a new uh, system to make it I guess a little bit more on par with at least this current generation but I don't know it, that I, just the well, idea right now sounds silly well the current rumor is that it's going to be more powerful than sure. uh, the PS3 but I imagine that it's probably uh, you know the same way that the Wii is more powerful than the original Xbox it's probably very marginal mm-hmm. uh, well I mean the Wii has never been Aimed at being the most powerful. No, no. I think this it's is never why been, it's. Go ahead. I think that I, I think that it's well. It's been out a while, and I, hell if I know, I haven't owned a game system since the original NES, so I'm not the best qualified to judge of this. But it's been out a while, and it seems like if they, as long as they 
have full backwards compatibility and don't screw anything up with that, uh, make it a little more competitive and a little more a little more capable. It doesn't have to be the most powerful because of the because it's the demographics for the Wii are very different than they are from the 360 or PS3. Well, they haven't they haven't actually said whether it's going to use motion control or not. I don't think so. We could end up with a completely different gimmick or a gimmick free system. You know, I I would say that would be the dumbest thing that they could do is removing that because that's part of what has defined the casual family set that they've been going for. And I think removing that would be completely boneheaded, and I, I don't see them being that stupid. Well, no, they can run both product lines kind of like Sony did with the PS2 and PS3. The trick is I don't think they have the, uh, the margin I, there. I, I really don't think Sony do. does. I, I mean, the, the, idea, the, the idea of losing the motion um, control in general, you essentially pretty much close off an entire catalog of video games now with the next generation. And as, I mean, with uh, what's been at least pretty much good about with the 360 and the PS3, they've at least given you the option to at least be able to um, – uh, go back and play your old PS2 or Xbox One games, and when you, if you were, if they, if that, I mean, again, these are all rumors, it's all speculative. So the idea of them going now, if they were to go away from the motion capture, you have that library no longer is it's has any meaning, and you could, I mean, sure, you can probably go with your your NES, your GameCube games, even, but it's it, it, that would just seem silly if they decided. See, that, that's a really good point because they really can't. They can't get rid of it. They've they've put they've they've gotten it into bed with the whole motion uh, control thing. They can't just jump out of bed with it, um, especially if they want any semblance of backwards compatibility. Which, if they're going to put a new system out this soon after the first, um, I mean they they don't have a choice. But at that point, what, what even if unless they go whole hog um, motion control, if they try to say, well, okay, maybe it's not working, we'll we'll make it. Maybe default to you know normal controller, but the option of motion control. Then you're competing directly with the 360 and Connect and and whatever PS3's thing the is. So the, yeah, the move. I actually I actually have a move as well. I have all three systems, so I can at least I can play. I can say from you know just a, probably a little bit more experience between all, having work with the, the everything, including the Connect. Um, I guess if I mean, assuming that they do get rid of it, probably they might have the option. Uh, I would say at least early enough in the system, in the system's life, to at least keep uh, have a sort of maybe a camera like the the, the move with the PS3 has. Maybe hmm. here's here's the reason I think this is a bad idea. The Wii has been the the top selling console in this uh, current generation for, in my opinion, two reasons, and and you guys can see fit to argue this if you want to, but. I think it's it's pretty spot on. The first one is the motion controls, which you know that was the first time anybody had seen it. They used a very simplified control system, and it sold to mom and dad. You know, mom, mom and dad would get it for for their kids because it's like, oh, we can all play this together, and it's easy to understand. The other well, thing, the other thing is the price. Yeah, you know, it came out substantially cheaper. I think it came out at, what two fifty. Um, I believe so, yeah, something like that. Yeah, it, it came out substantially cheaper than the 360, which the Pro, which was the only one worth having, came out at 400 and the PS3 
uh, what was it, 60 gig came out at 600. Yeah, around that um, But if you release a Wii 2 now, uh, the, the reason that sales have slowed for the Wii is because there are, there are no more games. Uh, they, you've already seen the sports games. You've already seen all the, the shovelware mini games. You've already seen Mario and Zelda and Metroid. Uh, they don't have anything except for Skyward Sword uh, for down the road. So there's re- very little interest in the Wii right now for anyone that doesn't already have one, especially with Connect and Move. If you make a Wii HD or Wii 2 or whatever you want to call it, even if you still have the motion controls, you're still not addressing the primary problem, which is the problem that Nintendo has had ever since they decided, no, fuck CDs, we're going to stick with the cartridge for N64, which is they have shit for third-party support. They have had shit for third-party support for N64, for GameCube, and not as much for the Wii, but the the third sort. Party support there has been shovelware as opposed to uh, what what uh, a, a old school gamer like myself would call a quote unquote legitimate game. And um, and I th- and I think what we're going to come back to again and again if if this is in fact true, the only reason they could be doing it, I I, th- I think is to go after third better get better third party support to I mean essentially to compete. With the three six to go after the the more hardcore gamers, I mean any any reason you can give in some way I think will tie into they're trying to, get, to they're trying to steal away people from uh, PlayStation and three sixty which I don't know how that would ever work. Well, to be fair with with Connect and Move now they're kind of losing that one point of differentiation. But so, they were there for they could at least say uh, they were I there. I wouldn't know either. It's, it's tough to say. I mean, I guess like from from a different perspective, since I mean, I do have uh, I run an anime podcast and I do tend to delve into more of the um, importing imported games that are over there in Japan. I do have a few um, Japanese games on the way. I had to um, do some things to the way first before, but um, dirty, dirty I things. can at least play them. And it's even then um, there's not exactly that big a catalog there and it's not really much I can get in. Yeah, um, it, it seems very. We had a cricket moment there. Yeah, we did. It got really quiet. Um, I actually, oh, thought it dropped uh, for a second. Only ten after. Uh, I thought it was supposed to happen at what twenty after. Well, I think I think Doc dropped out uh, with the connection there. Anyway, uh, while while we're trying to get him back, yeah, yep. it's great for Skype. Yeah, hooray <laughs> for Skype. <laughs> the, pro- uh... the problem with with the Wii is that you know. How are they going to get that third-party support, Charlie? I mean, they're they're going to have to have a more convention. They're going to have to turn their system into a 360 or a PS3. Exactly. Exactly. And, and there's absolutely nothing to be gained in doing that because you'll not really up, you'll end up being as expensive or more expensive, yep. and having nothing to differentiate. And you probably won't be making money on your system on your hardware. Yeah. Which, um, you're, I mean, you're only the only, only way you can you'd have to out Sony, Sony, and out. Microsoft, Microsoft. I mean, you'd have to come up with the most powerful system, which would, by default, unless you've got some sort of black magic, gonna be it's gonna be the most expensive system. And at that point, I think it's really too late in this generation to try to jump into that game and and hope to succeed. On top of that, to to play to that market, the PS3 360 market, they're gonna have to have exceptional online support, which Nintendo couldn't. You know, they cannot find a decent 
online setup with both hands and a flashlight. They can't do it. <laughs> yeah. And w- one thing you mentioned the current uh, console cycle. I think uh, Sony and I, I know Microsoft is, from, from what I've heard, is kind of planning to use Connect to kind of extend this console cycle and a lot of the, the, the features that they're adding now. So, you know, the, they're taking a much different tack than, than the other two companies are. Oh, yeah. If, if I were a betting man, I'd be willing to put down however much money you were willing to pay out to say that we won't see a new console from Sony or Microsoft for at least two years, maybe yeah. three. Yeah, yeah. I, I know that Sony is, but, uh, has already said that they plan to use the PS3 as long as possible. I don't think they would, would want to even think about trying to set up another console just now. What was the original estimate? Didn't they say they were hoping to go 10 years in this uh, yes. Another cycle? Ten, yeah, yes, 10 years. They were, they were expecting the, the least 10 years. Now, how, how exactly they, they go with that, you know, if it's like, you know, seven years and then they support the system for three years afterwards because the PS2 had a very long lifespan because they still supported it with games after the PS3 was released. But, they but in any case... They still do. There's still games coming on the PS2. I don't know why. Because uh, <laughs> everybody's got one. Gotta yeah. have the PS2 copy of Madden. Yeah, like the PS2 copy of WWE All-Stars. <laughs> sure. I get. I guess well, that, that's for the trailer park crowd who haven't upgraded yet. Sure. Hey, hey, listen, harsh. man. That's got that's got the Ultimate Warrior fighting the Rock. I'm harsh right, but true. Any game with the Ultimate Warrior is worth a purchase. I'm Damn straight. Straight. Yeah, dude, it has Savage Macho Man Randy <laughs> Savage is in the game. How the hell? Jesus. <laughs> uh, it's not like he's making any money else. Any place else, he might really. as well sell his image. He's he he's taking a break from his rapping career, sir, and he's uh, he's allowing himself to be a part of this game. He was on King of the Hill as well, one of the later seasons where uh, uh, that's right, where Bill decided he was going to get all muscled out, and he was he was hanging out with a bunch of muscle heads, and one of them was uh, Randy Savage. Oh, that's song. a good episode. <laughs> oh my! Oh yeah! No, I'm sorry, that I went all Kool-Aid guy on you. <laughs> I, 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 I think they're related. Close enough. Sure. Where were we? Uh, uh, hell. Um, anyway, I, I think we've we've kind of hit all the high points with Wii 2. Uh, Charlie, you sent Any a, an interesting... Final first? Um, I guess before we move on to the second, do we have any final thoughts on the Wii thing? I, I don't think... If it's... Uh, if it's a if if it's true, I think it's in the infancy of development. There's no way they can bring it out within the next couple of years. I just, I mean, I mean, I guess they can, but I I just think that would be ill advised. Well, we we got to wait till E3 to to hear anything for yeah. certain. Ch- chances are it's going to be more 3ds stuff that they're going to be talking about then. But yeah, trying to but push that system. That's another. Oh, yeah. The rumors have said that they're going to announce it, so yeah. we'll see. <laughs> if they do, I, I as current. As the gaming landscape is currently constituted, I think it's a tremendously dumb move. Uh, yeah. Well, well it's got to be better than the Virtual Boy. The 3DS, yeah, sure. Everything's got to be better than that. Yeah, and we what we don't want to see is Nintendo go the way of Sega and make a, a move that they cannot um, oh, I think, correct. I, I don't think they will collapse as bad. I, uh, I don't, yeah, I know. I, 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 it, it's never going to happen, but I I would say that it would probably be better for Nintendo to focus on making 
uh, first-party titles for uh, Sony and Microsoft and staying in the handheld market because that's where all their money is. You oh, know, yeah. that is true. Even, even in, uh, as far as Japan, on the Sony side, the PSP outsells everything. Yeah. Hmm. Well, the the PSP is a fun little device, but you know, it yeah, just over, yeah, over, <laughs> over here in the states, at least, yeah, it's just, but in Japan, it's like you, you have games that are being developed on the PSP and then ported to a Wii. Well, that's, that that's because uh, <laughs> Monster Hunter is huge in Japan. Yeah, and you know they have awesome internet and be, and people have PSPs around them, as opposed yeah. to here where mine broke, which is great. <laughs> As I said, I, I take mine. Uh, I'll have mine at MTech so I can watch anime and crap on it. Anyway, uh, yeah, Charlie, you sent an interesting article from NPR, and uh, and I'd, I'd say probably anyone that really cared about this article has already seen it, or any podcast has already talked about. Because when I look back at the date, this was actually at the end of January that this came out. Um, but it was a series. It's it's part of a series called uh, Let me find it. Fractured culture, and it's just looking at different subcultures and the particular one that i was reading was the selective subculture of fantasy gamers which uh, focused on final fantasy 13 it focused on computer rpgs because they do make a distinction in the article between this isn't dungeons and dragons this is something yeah they say your grandfather's rpgs yeah yeah although it could be because that franchise has been around for a while yeah dungeons and is still going they yeah. do get into that. And Final Fantasy, too. And Final Fantasy. Yeah. Your yeah. grandfather could, in fact, be playing either one of those right now. I know. Why would he, though? Okay. I don't know. My grandfather is dead. That's why. Yeah, Mine, too. I wasn't Thanks gonna for say reminding that. me. You're welcome. Anyway, um, th- this was... I don't know. I, I feel like this is one of those really NPR... You're you're doing this because they look at gaming as this sort of uh, secret society kind of club, and especially with Final Fantasy, come on, really? That there's a quote from uh, from uh, some kid that they interviewed where he's like, uh, "Hold on, I'm going to pull it up real quick about the, his mom." Yeah. Oh, right, yeah, I, got it pulled up. Uh, I personally it. liked that my mom didn't understand what buttons to press and how she couldn't play the games, he explains. It was something they, that I enjoyed that other people couldn't. That guy's an ass. Yeah. Yeah, kind of. I think he's just immature. They, did they ever say what age he is? No, but he sounded like he I, was. I think these are all from the, the same college, definitely, NYU. I think they're all part of the game thing. Okay. I believe you're right. Uh, yeah. I'm trying to look it up, but I can't find it. Yeah, I, I heard the little audio portion of that. So I heard the kids, and he sounded like he oh, was okay. in, in college age, at least. Ah, I read it online, so I was yeah. making there, there, Yeah, there's a little audio button there. You can click on it. Yeah. Mm. I'm, I'm not as harsh about it because, I mean, I, 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 they make some very good points. I think from the, from the perspective of, I mean, NPR is coming from it. To my to my mind, they're coming to it coming to it from the perspective of an outsider, and 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 well, so yes, I could see a subculture in in the people that play Final Fantasy. But there's yeah. a subculture in any aspect of of what we broadly define as popular culture. Like take sports. Uh, well, you know, then, I, I, I'm then, the only person probably on this podcast that uh, 
follow the sport, so thanks to our regularity. And if I were to start talking about, you know, advanced metrics and uh, wins above replacement and crap like that, it's going to seem like uh, secret knowledge, but it's just that I follow sports. And the same thing goes with video games. If, if you follow it, it's no longer secret knowledge, but it's not as though uh, anyone's trying to keep you from, from learning it. It's a, desi- it's a matter of desire, time, and interest. Yeah, I think sports is widely considered, you know, bigger than Final Fantasy, um, at least at least by people in that subculture. Well, I'm talking about gaming in general because well, yeah. because while they use Final Fantasy as the basis, they they address gaming as in general as uh, a secret club, and you well, know, I mean, ga- gaming itself is not. No, but I mean. I- I don't know. I, I guess if we were to if we were to look at the entire series that they're running on all the different subjects, I mean, I don't I don't think that's they're, one thing they're to say this is this is the only thing we're going to focus on. Um, the the actual the the description of the series itself is uh, call it disintermediation or cultural fragmentation, but American culture is sliced up in so many ways that what's popular with one group can go virtually unnoticed by another. NPR explores how we came to live in a culture of many cultures. Well, that's that's fine, but um, the the premise that it's exclusive to to other cultures is really a myth. It's it's a flawed perception because it's not that. Um, they don't know about it because it's hard to get into. It's they don't know about it because they don't have the interest. Yeah, it could be a lot of things. I mean, yeah, it, it, for me when I read this, I was like, well, yeah, obviously. As far as having you know cultures, and as far as I mean, with the with the comment about the how I'm, I'm glad my mother doesn't really know um, how to get into this game. It kind of, I mean, it goes so I can see it from another perspective as far as like uh, again anime. Since I I'm, I I've pretty much forced myself to delve into this culture where you have people who um, who may. Uh, look at watch an anime with subtitles and subtitles only, and how they might um, differ from people who might just watch dubs only. It's everyone's brought up a certain well, way. Those and, of us, those of us who watch only subtitled anime are doing it the only correct way. Obviously, <laughs> well, I, I, I don't want to get into the thing, but with, it's with um, text on the bottom where you have to read it because in Japan it's, it's totally this, got subtitles really? on the bottom. Well, no, well, now, no, no, before I don't want to get into this whole subtitle debate, but it's um, but I've noticed that there is a difference because like as far as like knowledge in regards to the culture, where for people who mainly watch its subtitles, um, I'll be honest with you, there are there are many vo- American voice actors who dub anime. I don't know them. I don't know. I'm not aware of them. Uh, my co-host from my show, Foxy, she lives in the Bahamas, and she doesn't. She's blissfully unaware of a lot of the people that are over here, as far as um, some of the stuff. And we t- we talk about anime in in kind of a relatively, um, I guess, uh, in stupid way as, as regards to stuff. But it, it's um, but it shows there is there's clearly a culture difference as far as um just the different subsex and then that's then it branches off even more when it comes to Yahweh and um, uh, just uh, Moe stuff and it, it, I, again it's it, it's not to say that it doesn't uh, it's not exclusive to uh, to video games or anything else it's it's something that's very uh, I, I, for at least in my from my experience widely known uh, well mm. at least to me you know if they really wanted to go into uh, a subgenre of gaming that's difficult to get into and is, is notoriously uh Exclusive fighting games would be the the one to do it on. Oh, yeah, be, that. because one, uh, 
aside from you and me, Doc, I'm pretty sure every person that uh, plays fighting games with, to any uh, consistent degree is a complete uh, asshat. Uh, to some degree, I guess it's like um, you know. It, it, but then it varies between games. You have your your very button smasher games that you can that it's usually easy for anyone to get into, and then you have the ones where you have to time it, make sure you counter it properly, um, or see how many fireballs you can throw at a time. It's and just understanding moves, hand eye coordination, timing. It's a lot of things that it, it limits. Phys- like there might be physical limitations for some people to get into this stuff, and it's and it, it's all. I guess it all depends on the person, and yeah, time, experience, and. Um, uh, interest, yeah. but I can see why, for instance, in this in this particular article, why they would pick, say, Final Fantasy over fighting games or J, RPGs, JRPGs instead of uh, fighting games. And, I, and I, the, again, I'm coming from this from the perspective of what a, what makes sense to me. Were I an outsider, which is with a fighting game, you can still you may not be good at it, but you can still jump in, play around, and you're like, oh, okay. But to actually play Final Fantasy. It takes a lot of time, and you have to want to read the story. When you, I mean, a lot of times, you can just you know click through real quick. And it's really much, pretty much just you pressing X. Uh huh. Yeah. With the with the occasional timing moments, but that's about it. Yeah. And that's 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 uh, it. All depends on the on the game. But I think if you look at it from the if you just sort of glance over the two genres. I, I, it seems it would seem from an outsider's perspective that fighting games are more accessible because you can just get in, you can push buttons, something's going to happen. You may be good, you may be bad. Now, if you want to get into it, yes, it com- it becomes immensely complex. Oh yeah, um, and and then the culture expands after that. It's uh, as far as like when you hear the word Pringles. You probably for some people who are it might yeah exactly you might think no. hey that's that's a delicious snack but other people you think hey there's a very funny son of a bitch talking about uh, Magneto Mag fucking Nito yeah yeah we got the mango signal. you can tell the rest of us are lost exactly so it just shows you that just the interest in getting into the culture it um it it might end up um, uh, you know it might be difficult to get into but th- there is a lot more inside of it and people on the outside might not know exactly everything about it. It, it just down the surface level. That's it. Well, I think um, what's interesting about them calling it kind of this secret, you know, secret society as far as RPGs go compared to like sports, the example of sports is um, the person saying that one is, it sounds like, He's being very self-conscious about how secret the knowledge is as opposed to, you know, what it is. And he's also, um, it, it sounds like he hasn't experienced much else outside of that to, to actually have that sense of perspective. So I don't think that, you know, he's just a jerk like you guys were saying earlier. It may really be that he is... Um, well, if, if in a sense, is, inexperienced. Yeah, I mean, if this is like his first Final Fantasy, then I will hate him for other reasons. Uh, <laughs> Not necessarily his first Final Fantasy, but, you know, he spent a lot of time on Final Fantasy as opposed to kind of getting a broader mm, exposure to, yeah, or yeah. even to, to other types of video games. Yeah. Or two things outside of video games. <laughs> or, or maybe we're just reading too much into this and it's just some dude who's like, hey, this is a really awesome scene in this game. That uh, too. I'm glad my mom can't play it. Yeah, she sucks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's that's terrible. Yeah, that's that true. 
terrible thing. Not as terrible as uh, five out of the six main character cast members in Final Fantasy Thirteen. Thank God for Lightning, because those other five fuckers are just terrible. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they're hit and miss. I, I, I like the dude in the sh- little baby chocobo. Oh, oh, Frocobo there? Yeah. Is this a bad time to mention that I've never actually played any of the Final Fantasy games? Not even the first? You had an NES. You said that earlier. I I had one. I didn't have very many games uh, or very much interest in it. Uh, Get thee to an emulator. That's okay. I played very little after Final Fantasy three, the American version. Final Fantasy. I can't. I, I never can remember the Japanese numbering. So Final Fantasy three, American. Yeah, like that would be six Japanese. That was kind of yeah. where I stopped. I played, I played like two hours worth of seven American, and then played a couple hours. I think nine also how about, American. How about Mystic Quest? You played that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <nope>. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, I played. I. I played Bard's Tale on PC. That's almost like what we're talking about. It's a good Quest 64? How about that? Oh, God. Nope. Nope. Wait, what'd you say? Quest 64. Quest 64? Mm-hmm. What's that on? Um, uh, Genesis, actually. Wow, okay. Yeah. I, I didn't have a Genesis. That's weird. When you say 64, I assumed it was the N64 or Commodore 64. Uh, that, that was a joke. It's on the N64. Oh. Owie. Oh. Oh. I, I, I assumed it might have actually been Commodore 64. And now we all get to feel stupid. Ready to go. <laughs> okay. and, I, and I never played that game either. So I, I, that was like, <laughs> I was like, I was, I was, I was, I was, I was, I terrible RPGs. Click. Wow. Well, <laughs> sooner or later, someone's going to call your bluff, you know. Ah, uh, that's why my show is there. But today is not that day. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get you next time, Gadget. Next, next time. time. Oh. <laughs> Holy shit! <laughs> wow. <laughs> dun dun dun. Okay. Um. Well, we we've run out of those topics pretty quickly. Uh, do want to just kind of uh, talk a little bit about why we're doing a, a regular uh, anime interview in the middle of all these other Voices for Japan interviews? And th- the answer is quite simple. Um, I contacted Crispin Freeman about uh, doing a, a segment for Voices for Japan, and uh, you know, in, in the course of the conversation, he said, "Hey, why don't we just do a, a, a full-fledged regular interview?" And uh, to paraphrase Bill Murray, when Crispin Freeman asks, "Do you want to do an interview?" You say yes. Yes. Yeah. I think uh, that's really awesome because if he didn't feel like he could really give a good perspective on the situation, well, I, other I, than push through and and try, I think he may have, and he's not he's not the only one that's done this. May have misinterpreted what Voices for Japan is about and and what we're looking for because we're not looking to get, you know, we're, we're not going to spout facts. Uh, yeah, really more to get. Uh, I know what you're. St- I know what you just said, but what it sounded like uh, is that I'm going to make shit up. <laughs> Truthiness, not intended as a factual <laughs> statement. Right. I cannot conform nor deny. Yes, uh, but but it's actually you know we're looking more for. Well, the, we make up uh, enough shit anyway. So. True. True. Yeah. But we're looking more for their reactions to it and to the response from the the anime uh, fan community as well as the the anime industry itself, which uh, has has been great on both sides. So, uh, in any case, 
some of those questions that that get asked in all the voices for Japan segments uh, are in there, but we're also you, you're also going to hear about how he smuggled art, which is incredible. <laughs> awesome. Yes, to me. Has the statute yeah. of limitations expired yet? Uh, well, it happened in Prague, so. <laughs> Someone in what, Prague stay, was, what happens in Prague stays in Prague. I think it was during the uh, the Iron Curtain, so it's it's been a while. The the statute's probably up, and nobody listens well, those... to this podcast anyway. So true. So I mean, even though there's probably some weird communist police force looking for him as we speak, um, from a country that, that no longer awesome. exists, right? Just that one. Well, they didn't get the word. No one told them. <laughs> <laughs> They're like those guys in Scott County that didn't get the memo that uh, the Civil War is over. Exactly. Shout outs to Scott County. <laughs> I'm not the Indians represent. Wow. Ooh. Only shout out they're ever going to get. Yep. Good, good for them, though. Good for them. Because one of their alumni is completely bagging on them right now. No one from that school is ever going to hear it, except for Nathan. And he doesn't. One count. of their. You think just one of their alumni is bagging on them right no, no, <laughs> no. Somewhere, so somewhere, uh, someone else right now, probably. Someone is, else yeah. is talking about how much of so it sucks. Yep. But um, oh, something I wanted to to touch on briefly, um, because MTAC is nigh upon us. Yes. Um, in an effort to uh, to train for MTAC, being that there will be so many concerts, I have attempted to go to three concerts in three days over the weekend. <laughs> did you succeed? I, I failed. I, I did manage to see four bands, but I, I could not get the fifth and or sixth in there because uh, I got sick. But um, probably as From going to the other concerts? Well, I think I would have gotten sick anyway. I just think my immune system was compromised as a result of staying up late, then having to wake up early to go to work so I could stay up late again. Yeah, and then it's go to work. The, the equivalent of con crud with music. Yeah. Would you have but, uh, seen these bands if it was not for this uh, training? Okay, yeah, I would have. Okay. I, I made the connection after the fact. I was like, huh. But um, but no, I just wanted what? to – I got to see uh, Thursday night, uh, saw Carbon Leaf and uh, Toad the Wet Sprocket. Friday night. Toad the Wet Sprocket is still around? Yes, they yes, have they unbroken up. Um, and are working on their first album in I think 15 years. The what's cool oh um, is they also had a remastering or a re-recording of one of their older albums. Well, the way they put it, the stuff that Sony didn't own. But um, and then Friday night got to see uh, Teddy Thompson and the old 97s, and then was gonna try on Saturday to see Hayes Carl, and that one didn't work out. But I did get to hear part of a live. Um, concert he did as part of international record store day or whatever it was called um up in knoxville but um let's see carbon leaf was probably my favorite one i'm actually wearing one of their shirts right now uh excellent show the uh ted lewitt sprocket also good also very good um the best part of that being when somebody in the crowd yelled out proud mary and the bass player without missing a beat starts playing and singing proud mary uh. That was pretty awesome. Um, and they also started talking about evolutionary biology, which was interesting. Namely that uh, human the, – they posited that humans actually evolved to be um, cooperative rather than hyper-competitive. But because humans are so adaptable, they can become hyper-competitive, which is why so many people are douchebags. 
is what they said. Um, and then Teddy Thompson. As good a theory as any domain. Exactly. Uh, Teddy Thompson, competent musician. I, I, I didn't really. I mean, his music was good. It wasn't great, but his banter was actually pretty fantastic. And yes. somehow he came upon the idea that um, earwax is a side effect of rape. That's because someone screamed that out. We think that, they screamed rape. We don't know what they screamed. Earwax is a sign of rape? It's a, it's a, a side, side effect. effect. Don't question it. You if, were not, if, if, that, if you, that, it sounds oh. like something Michelle Bachman would say. Oh, yeah. I remember her from oh. Bachman Turner Overdrive. Um, Damn you. And then uh, the old 97s were incredibly loud. They were good. Yes. They were incredibly loud. And the lead singer really does channel Elvis. And it was very nice of them to let Stephen King and his Western shirt play bass. <laughs> yes. I swear to you, the bassist looked like Stephen King in a Western shirt. And the drummer was Dean Koontz. He might have been. He might have been. Actually, the, the worst one was Toad the Wet Sprocket. Every guy in that band looked like somebody else. The lead singer looked like Dave Foley. Uh, rhythm guitar guy looked like Kevin Smith. The bassist looked like um, oh hell, I just forgot what he looked like. Uh, the keyboardist was Keith Urban, I'm pretty sure, and the drummer was um, Woody Allen. Well, now we know if you disappear tomorrow, it will be because you exposed their secret. Yes. So I went dead. off and joined the uh, the band. But anyway, that was that was my weekend in an attempt now. to. Uh, in an attempt to work myself up for MTAC, and instead I made myself sick. So go me. Yay. Uh, yeah. I'll be going to the Yay. doctor tomorrow for some powerful antibiotics. This does not bode well. <laughs> Hopefully you won't explode by MTAC. Oh, good God. Uh, I, better be, I better be well before MTAC. I'm just going to pack it in. Screw it. Uh, you're not really sick. You're undead. You can't be sick. Hey, I I am quite sick, and I do eat food. Two proofs that I am human. Brains aren't considered food. Souls are considered food. Yes. You know, Soul now food. we're just you splitting hear hairs at the time. Oh, collard greens and souls. Yes, that's <laughs> fried chicken and souls. You can put a fried soul on a waffle. Don't ask me how I know. <laughs> uh, Doc, do you have anything that you want to pimp out? Um, well, besides my site, uh, uh, ssaapodcast.com, that's where the Aspect Resume Podcast is. And the letters are significant, or just show you have to flip it around just to understand the gimmick that I have for the name. Um, oh, now it makes sense. Yeah. Uh, every, everyone yeah. has that same, everyone has that reaction whenever they, whenever I tell them the, the site. Um, besides. <laughs> Besides that, twi- I'm on Twitter, twitter.com slash SSA podcast, YouTube, Facebook, um, two other shows that I run, the Jessica Tama podcast and One Podcast Prevails. You can find those, I guess, through my site, so I don't want to go through all of that. But that's it. Awesome. Um, anybody else have anything before we uh, hand it over to Crispin in his godlike voice? Nope. Nope. <laughs> all hearts and minds clear. Uh, yep. Peace be with you and also with Crispin Freeman. <laughs> Uh, and uh, okay. we we will be coming at you with uh, tons and tons and tons and tons of crap from MTAC. Assuming uh, MTAC isn't swallowed into the void. Right. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so I'm taking my plane to the void right now. Because, you know, uh, two years ago we had a tornado. Last a year flood. we had the flood. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, 2012 really will be the end of the world and it will happen at MTAC. Yes. Brilliant. It's going to be third impact. I'm calling it. Yep. 
Um, so yeah, I'm going to go with Cylons. Okay, you do that. You always uh, side with them. Anyway, you I don't, you aren't predicting that's how the world's going to end. You're you're saying you're actually going to join them. Yeah, he's just stating oh. his legions. That's all. It's it's going to be fun because uh, Doc, you're going to be at M Tech. Uh, we're finally going to meet uh, Yuri Lowenthal and Terra Platt in person. Uh, by the time you guys hear this, the Terra Platt voices for Japan will be out. Uh, have plenty others uh, coming down the pike. I'm recording too, uh, the the same night that we're recording this. So, lots of stuff uh, coming down the road from us. So, stay tuned. It doesn't. Hello, and welcome to a very special edition of the Chainsaw Buffet podcast. Uh, I have the extreme honor of being joined by uh, one of the most iconic voices in anime and video games, Crispin Freeman. Crispin, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, the pleasure is all ours. Uh, trust me. Now, Crispin, let's go ahead and get started by telling us what really uh, got you into acting. Wow, that's a good question. Um, I think what got me into acting was actually when I was young, my family was very heavily involved with the opera in Chicago. Uh, both my father and my grandfather were big patrons of the opera. And they encouraged me as a little kid to try out to be on stage, to just be one of the kids on stage in the opera. And initially I resisted because I was too shy and I was scared to go up on stage. Uh, but eventually they convinced me and I ended up falling in love with being backstage at the opera. It was this magical space where people would go backstage and these theaters are huge. I mean, you have to have elevators to go to all the different floors backstage at an opera house. So someone would walk off the street, they'd go up the elevator, they'd come down the elevator, and they'd be Henry VIII. And I just thought that was so cool. And they would walk out on stage, and they would open their mouth and sing, and people would applaud. Um, and it was I loved being part of the illusion of putting on the show for other people. So um, that was all through middle school. And then in high school, I decided to start auditioning for plays. And I started taking acting classes, and then went off to college and majored in theater and then got my master's in acting uh, in New York and have sort of been acting ever since. Now, you also do some directing as well. I do, although I haven't, I haven't been doing much directing recently. Uh, I used to do a little bit more uh, directing of uh, anime shows and video games in the past and also some script adaptation for uh, shows and video games. But uh, recently I've been more busy with the voice acting and with teaching my classes, so I haven't done as much directing recently. I've always been curious because I know there are a number of voice actors turned voice directors, and I've always wondered, what. at what point do you say in your mind, I think I'd like to, you know, uh, I think I can do what the jerk in the, in, on the other side of the glass is doing. Uh, I think I want to try that. Well, luckily, the, the person on the other side of the glass isn't a jerk. They're usually a good friend of yours who's also a voice actor. So uh, it's it's. I, I think it, it it comes down to whether it, it's those voice actors who get who fall really in love with uh, a certain medium or uh, style that they say, "Hey, I really care about this, and I'd like to not only make my character." sound good. I'd like to make all the characters sound good. I'd like to take responsibility for the entire production. Because that's really what a director does. A director comes in and says, I'm going to be responsible to make sure that this game, this show, whatever it is, gets the best treatment possible. 
And so uh, certain people are much more attracted to working on video games. Uh, other people are attracted to working on domestic animated series. And there are other people who are attracted to working on anime and anime dubbing stuff. So I think that's usually how it happens, um, is that someone's got to actually care about what's going that's, on. That's very interesting. I've, I've, that's, that's very interesting. I've, I've never looked at it uh, in that way. Now, is that more of a response to... Uh, you you caring about the process of voiceover, or is it more about uh, a particular you know video game in general? And that you know, I think it depends more uh, not that you're caring about voiceover, but that you're caring about the story. Um, uh, my good friend Mary Elizabeth McGlynn has spent most of her time as a voice director, and she did Cowboy Bebop and Wolf's Rain and Naruto, and she's done a uh, director, but she's also a really brilliant actress as well. She played uh, Julia in Cowboy. She played Jagra in Wolf's Rain, uh, and she plays a character in Naruto as well. So she's a director who happens to voice act. I'm more of a voice actor who sort of happens to direct. <laughs> so we're sort of on opposite sides. But the thing is that the one thing that Mary Elizabeth and I share is we really story. So when we were working on Wolf's Rain. Two of us were geeking out over the story in general, not just my character, all the characters, and where the story was going, and what did the story mean. And because there was mythology behind Wolf's Reign, and because I'm a mythology scholar and I give press translations, Mary Elizabeth would help her and say times when she was working on the script, and she'd say, Crispin, how do you think we should play this out? Should it work this way or that way in terms of the meaning of the story and, and how we translate these words? And so I would help her and say, hmm, I think this word might be a better translation for that Japanese term because it has this meaning in mythology in English, uh, and that's probably a better word than that word. And so we would sort of consult. So that that's just, you know, that's a hop, skip, and a jump away from directing the show yourself. You know, that's that's sort of how I would I got into that sort of thing. You must have done a lot of interviews before because you've given me the perfect segue. You talked about... Uh, being a mythology scholar, and I know that you offer uh, mythology and anime classes. Tell me a little bit about how that got started and where you went from being interested in mythology in general into uh, really wanting to get into the mythos of anime. Well, it really began when I was going to... I first started going to conventions back in 1999, um, and initially you get the same questions all Who's your favorite character? And we, as voice actors, we know to expect these questions, and they're fine. They're, they're perfectly valid questions. But after a while, you want to sort of um, advance the level of the conversation a little bit. And I realized there were two things that I really wanted to talk about with people. One was either how to get into the industry. Um, what does it take to be a voice actor, and how do you get in? And that's how why I started doing my voice acting workshops. And the second was, why do we love these stories so much? Why do you dress up like the characters? Why are you watching these DVDs over and over and over again? And I realized that that had to do with the mythology. That had to do with the stories and uh, the religious traditions in different cultures and how they sort of percolated up through these pop culture heroes and these different archetypes. So that's sort of how my mythology studies happened. And a lot of that happened because that's what I found interesting as an And I was trying to find what captivated me as an artist, what really got me excited and, 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 and got me going, 
Um, it was mythological storytelling. It was archetypal hero journeys. It was sort of this epic type of, of work. And so um, what I found was that in anime, in Japanese animation, that people love to play with those kind of hero journeys all the time. So um, I was able to take my studies in mythology and sort of apply them to anime and be able to tease out the meanings underneath stuff that maybe weren't as obvious um, so that I could sort of raise to a conscious level why people were subconsciously attracted to this stuff and sort of expose um, why Americans write about superheroes and why the Japanese write about giant robots and how it has to do with the different religious traditions in each culture and, and then how that sort of percolates up. So that's sort of how it all got started. Then I got invited to an academic conference and I panicked and I thought, oh my God, I have to put together something really good. And then it turned out really well. And uh, every year I've been going back to this academic conference and presenting a new, uh, what I call anime mythology presentation. So I've done five of them now uh, and they're all listed on my website in the anime mythology section. And then um, actually the beginning of this year, I was invited to teach at a school here in Santa Monica. And they said, we want you to teach a five-week class. And I said, well, how about uh, a five-week class on the mythology behind sci-fi and fantasy films? And they said, sure, we'll announce it tomorrow. And I was like, wait, wait, wait a minute. I have to actually make them. These things are really intense with lots of video and slides. And ah. So I was basically sleepless all through January and February teaching that class. Um, but that's sort, of, that's sort of my obsession is uh, mythology and meaning. Um, what, is, what does the story mean? Um, what is it going for heroes fighting for uh, in the story? Now, do you have a uh, anime that you really enjoy delving into the mythos in and trying to break down? Does one uh, jump out? There are a couple, and I, and I mention them in some of my presentations because um, after my first presentation, uh, which was Giant Robots and Superheroes, the ones after that, I started focusing on other sort of East-West comparisons and usually at the end of the presentation, I would bring up an anime that I thought really explored these issues well. Um, one of my favorite anime shows is The Vision of Escaflone, which really takes the notion of the knight and the dragon, which uh, have uh, the dragon works very differently east and west. The western dragon is a sort of evil, greedy fire breather, whereas the eastern dragon is more of a powerful um, uh, and dynamic water spirit. Um, who can be very helpful, um, can also be very dangerous because powerful, but can be a very helpful spirit. Um, and these are very different types of dragons, and so they have different um, relationships with the heroes in the stories. And so Escaflone really does a really good job of sort of taking the Western style of the dragon and subverting it with Eastern notions and mixing it up. Um, Revolutionary Girl Utena really has some amazing uh, mythological and Jungian uh, sort of psychology stuff underneath it. Uh, Wolf's Reign, I love to death because it's got such a fantastic cosmology. The way the world works um, has such a sort of Hindu and Buddhist notion behind it. And yet it has its own mythos of these wolves. And what does it mean to be these wolves searching for paradise? And what is a lunar flower? And how does the lunar flower open up the path to paradise? Um, so those are the ones that are usually sort of uh, top of my list. I... That's very interesting. Uh, wish I lived closer to where you're holding these so I could actually go to one. That would be uh, fascinating, no doubt. Now, um, as far as your career as an actor, who or what would you say has had the biggest impact on how you go about uh, acting? Wow. I think my earliest 
influence, uh, besides obviously sort of growing up at the opera, um, one of my earliest influences was Gene Kelly. Gene Kelly, um, I really sort of styled myself in high school uh, as being um, what we like to call a triple threat, an actor, a singer, and a dancer. Um, because Gene Kelly really sort of exemplified that for me in films like An American in Paris and Singing in the Rain. And uh, the fact that he could do all three and, and do them so well really impressed me. And so I wanted to be able to do all of that as well. So I uh, was the only guy in ballet in high school, and I was always singing in the chorus, and I was acting in any show I could get, get into. Um, as I grew older and I got more into um, theater and more serious theater, I always admired a lot of the British actors, frankly. Uh, people like uh, uh, Kenneth Branagh or Derek Jacobi or Jeremy Irons or Emma Thompson um, or Kate Blanchett. Um, but then when I thought about animation and voice acting, I realized that the voices that really affected me when I was young, um, many of them came from the old Rankin-Bass animated shows, specifically The Hobbit. Uh, I was raised on Tolkien. My mom used to read me The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings when I was young. And I absolutely loved the animated version of The Hobbit, and I loved the voices in it, too. Um, they were They were so captivating to me. So I think I think I sort of uh, I I think that's those are the sort of my my roots my influences as an actor. Now I want to move the the needle a little bit away from from acting and your career and talk a little bit about you as an individual. I was looking at your website and something uh, in some of your your biographical information really jumped out at me and I, I wanted to ask you about it. Uh, you mentioned uh, smuggling artwork out of Prague with your family during the Iron Curtain years. <laughs> yes. Um, what happened was that my father went over to Prague in Czechoslovakia, back when it was called Czechoslovakia, um, and during the uh, what's called the, the, the Prague Spring, the years when Dubček was in power, and things were getting more liberal and more free, uh, and... Uh, he met up with a whole bunch of wonderful artists in Prague, abstract uh, expressionist painters and sculptors. And he made friends with all of them, loved their artwork, and actually one of them was visiting my family in the United States when the Soviets actually rolled into Russia in 1968. And my father had to wake up our friend and say, we're very sorry, Yerji, but you're kind of smuggling right now. Um, he had to go back. Our friend had to go back, and uh, I wasn't even born at this time, but he had to go back, and he, he would buy and couldn't leave. And the problem was is that the Soviets over the country um, would only support socialist realism. They wouldn't support any other type of artwork. So all of our friends who were abstract artists were basically out of the job. So what my father did is he set up this um, unofficial smuggling ring where he would go over to Prague, under the auspices of a family trip, he would bring his entire family. He would buy this abstract art and sculpture for hard currency because the Czech currency wasn't worth anything outside of Czechoslovakia. So he would pay for it in American dollars, um, and he would bring them acrylic paints so they could keep working, and then he would smuggle it back to the States and sell it for them here. And so we would do this every couple of years. We'd sort of go on this little smuggling run to help support our friends and help them uh, pay them with, with money that they, they found useful and sell their artwork in the U.S. If my father had gone by himself, I have a feeling they probably would have arrested him. 
but I don't think they had the balls to arrest an entire American family over a bunch of paintings. So somehow, one way or another, we always got out of the country um, <laughs> with, with all the artwork. Um, usually my dad would slip them some money or something because, to be perfectly frank, the, the Czech officers who were there, they didn't want to be working for the Soviets. And so I think once you grease the wheels with a little currency, they would say, it's, it's paintings, go, go home, we don't care. Um, so we did this on a regular basis. And so as a child, I was exposed to a country that was under occupation, um, which was really sort of enlightening in my own um, in my own development and understanding of the world. Um, and I was actually there right after the Velvet Revolution when Havel took power in the 90s, and it literally was like Dorothy and Oz. I mean, it went, the whole city went from... After the Velvet Revolution, it was, it was quite impressive. That's an amazing story. I appreciate you sharing that with us. No problem. Um, going back to, I, I suppose, uh, what by comparison seems a bit more mundane, um, just speaking about your interest in mythology in general, um, how did how did that come to be? Was was there a particular uh, story that that led you into the road into becoming a mythology scholar? Or well, I think what happened was is that when I was in grad school in New York, um, I reached a sort of crisis point in my life where nothing seemed to be working. Um, my acting sucked. <laughs> my art. My artistry sucked. Um, my personal life wasn't going the way I wanted it to. I was sort of all alone in New York, and I was sort of throwing up my hands and going, I don't get it. What am I doing wrong? What's, what's the problem here? And uh, it was luckily sort of when I was at my wit's end trying to figure out how to put things together that I came across two all through high school. But once I went up to college, this was before um, the mythology, specifically so it was the BS series that he did with Bill Moyers called The Power of Myth. Um, which is still a wonderful introduction to Joseph Campbell's scholarly work. And Campbell was talking about mythology and religions in a way that I'd never heard anyone talk about before. Um, and he was really trying to extract the wisdom traditions and finding a way to apply to your everyday life. And I thought that was fascinating. Um, what I also found fascinating was it, that was also the time when I was reintroduced to anime. I had always watched anime all through high school, but once I went off to college, this was before um, the World Wide Web, so there was really no access to any kind of uh, anime and, and not much media at all um, when I was at college. I was a computer science minor, so I was a, a hacker, and I was on the computer networks. But that was back when we had Usenet and Archie and Veronica, and there really wasn't much many graphics. There were, the web didn't exist until a year after I graduated college. So um, it wasn't until I got out of college and in grad school when I was in New York in New York City that I was able to go to a store that actually sold anime. Here was a specialty store in New York City that sold anime, and I was able to get reconnected with anime. And so I had Joseph Campbell's work on mythology, and then I had this brand new anime that was really cool, and specifically the show I was uh, reintroduced to was Macross Plus. I had been a huge fan of Robotech when I was young, and now I had Macross Plus, which is sort of this updated version of Robotech. Yes. With all this really cool mythology underneath it. And now I had Campbell's work as a sort of Rosetta Stone to help me unpack this mythology that was lying underneath the story that I'd always been subconsciously attracted to, but had never been consciously aware of as a creator. And that sort of sealed the deal. From then on, it was sort of off to the races. I couldn't get enough of exploring hero journeys in animation, and specifically Japanese animation. 
Um, and so that, that just, uh, from then on, I, I, anything I could learn about mythology and, and comparative religions, I was, I was, I was hooked because I found it so useful as a storyteller myself, um, both as an actor trying to understand my characters and understanding my place in the story as a director in trying to understand the intention behind stories and as a creative writer myself. I plan on doing my own original stories. Um, and, and, and I help others with their stories as well. Now, uh, from your, your time being a, uh, minoring in, uh, what, what was it? Computer engineering? Is that what you said your minor was? Uh, computer science. Computer I, I science. Gonna, yeah, I was going to double major in theater and computer science, but then they wanted me to take linear algebra, and I was just like, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I'm already getting nosebleeds from the pressure change between the computer science lab and the theater. I think I'll die. So, you know, I, I said, let me just go for the minor, and then I'll, <laughs> I'll just be a hacker on the side when, when I'm not acting. Do you, do you still do uh, a lot of, of computer programming and things like that these days? I don't actually do any coding these days, uh, mostly because I, I'm just not that hardcore to actually go to sort of third-level programming languages and, you know, C++ and Lisp and all that kind of stuff. And most of what people do nowadays is scripting. Most of it's HTML and web stuff. And frankly, I leave that to the experts. But I do use my computer knowledge extensively when dealing with uh, video and audio, which gets can get really sort of complicated at the professional level when you really want to sort of make things uh, uh, better than YouTube, shall we say. Um, uh, you know, when you, when you want to deal with professional audio and, and video, you really sort of need to know what's going on in the guts of the computer and you need to know what's happening with the digital video and whatnot. So it's been invaluable for all that work. That's, that's cool stuff. I, you know, all of our high end, uh, computer stuff is, is done by our engineer, Dylan, who does a fantastic job with all that. I, I always say I know just enough to be dangerous, but not enough to be useful to anybody. Um, anyway, uh, putting that aside, if you don't mind, I'd like to talk a, just a little bit about um, something that you and I were both a part of, though, though not at the same time, and that is the Anime Fans Get Back to Japan event from a couple of weeks ago. Um, what was your uh, general uh, reaction when you heard about the earthquake in Japan? Well... My first reaction was basically concern for my friends and colleagues who work there. Um, I was aware that it was off the coast um, and so had not uh, necessarily been uh, terribly deadly as an earthquake in and of itself in Tokyo, which is where most of my uh, friends and colleagues live. So... Um, I wasn't, uh, I thought they were probably okay from the earthquake in Tokyo. But once the tsunami started being part of the, uh, part of the disaster as well, and then the nuclear plant being heavily damaged, that's when I really started to get, uh, very concerned because there were, uh, it was getting much closer to people who I frankly interact with on a regular basis. Um, most of the classes that I teach here in Los Angeles, are through a school called the Japan Visual Media Translation Academy. And I've been partners with them now for almost two years. And they have an office in Tokyo, and I have very good friends there. And that was my first concern, was uh, contacting the L.A. branch and saying, I'm sure you're in touch with Tokyo. Is everyone okay? Um, after that, it was, it was uh, once I realized that my personal friends were okay, it was sort of looking at the disaster as a whole. And after seeing the footage... 
especially some of the helicopter footage of the surge of the water going over the countryside, the scale of that sort of damage was sort of mind-boggling. And to think that this was happening um, in a developed country that, uh, you know, ostensibly was expecting earthquakes, that, that tries to plan for earthquakes, and still, no matter what systems they may have had in place, most, if not all of them, were overwhelmed by the scale of this of this disaster. Um, that was that was humbling to say the least, um, and it really it made me heartsick because I knew there was really not much I could physically do to help, um, and so immediately I was trying to find you know which which charity would be a good place to donate to to try to get money to the people who could help. Um, right. The guys who had the machinery, who had the expertise, who had the skill. Because, you know, there's no point in me showing up. I'd probably just be a burden on anyone because <laughs> now they just have to take care of me because I was there. Um, it was a matter of, wow, how do we get the resources to the experts, to the people who are in a position to help things and get them the support they need so that they can help the people who are in, in trouble? Um, uh, and it's, it's just, it's, it's one thing to watch. It's one thing to watch the Japanese countryside being devastated in a Godzilla movie. It's another thing to see actual fishing boats washed up into towns and think, uh, you know, my God, watching waves take over roads and seeing cars, and you just think, I hope no one's in that car. That's uh, and and you just don't know. Um, and that that was very heartbreaking. So. Um, as heartbreaking as it was, it was amazing to see how many people reacted um, so quickly to try to sort of uh, rally people to come up with uh, funds and support for Japan. Because, uh, frankly, I think that's what they, they probably need more than anything is just uh, monetary assistance. Um, Japan has lots of systems and they have lots of people there and they have lots of infrastructure. They just need um, the money and the manpower and, and, uh, and the machinery to do what they need to do to try to take care of things. Uh, couldn't couldn't agree on that more. Um, you know, sort of speaking on something you touched on a little bit there. Um, you know, there uh, I have seen a number of different uh, groups from the both sides of the anime community, both the fans and, and those involved in the industry itself here in the United States, uh, become very active in the effort to raise funds what's what's been your reaction from what you what you've seen how how what would you say your uh i suppose first reaction is to the upswell support that you've seen it's wonderful i mean it's 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 fantastic to see so many people coming out in force um to do their best to support um the culture of an art form that they love. And I think that's the one interesting thing about people who are fans of anime. Um, if someone is a fan of, say, French filmmaking or film noir, I don't know that the French filmmaking fan base um, would necessarily be that motivated to help uh, France in a disaster. I could be totally wrong about that. But I think that people many times sample the artwork uh, from different cultures and they don't necessarily feel personally involved in that culture. Just because you watch a French film doesn't necessarily mean you, you feel personally invested in France as a country. 
But I feel that anime fans, because they they um, j- because anime is so important to them, that they are personally invested in Japan. Um, that Jap- it's it's more than just the entertainment; it is the culture it comes from as well. And so I think that really sparks them to say, "Hey, um, you know, we need to we need to help." these people we need to help uh this culture that has provided us with such entertainment um and frankly i mean not to uh, uh, to say it sort of flat out one of the best things you can do is help them by buying their product you know i mean by buying anime you are putting money into their economic system when they need it um one of the best things you can do to support um art and culture that you love whether it's in a disaster or not, is to financially support it. That's really putting your money where your mouth is. Um, if if you want to help out, buy their stuff because you know the companies are struggling anyway. That will certainly help things. It it, it gives money to people who are working there. They can put more money into the economy, and, and everything gets better. So that's that's well said. I don't think anyone could could put it any better. Um, no, you've got a lot on your plate, so uh, we're going to let you go. But before we do, um, is there any upcoming events or projects uh, that you want to talk about or any uh, any parting words you want to share? Yes. Um, as uh, many of you know, that I am working on an anime series called uh, Durarara, uh, which is a wonderful series where I play Shizuo Hewajima, who is the strongest man in Tokyo. It's it's a wonderful show. Many people know about it already because I believe the first two volumes of it are now out on DVD. Mm-hmm. I highly recommend it. But I am willing to give you a little scoop if you like. Go for um, it. I just finished working on an anime this morning, uh, which just happens to be the movie of the Melancholy of Haruhi Suzumiya series. We are now in recording for the disappearance of Haruhi Suzumiya, as the movie is called. Uh, and so we've just started recording on that, which I'm very excited about, because I, well, I did not know when we would be able to work on the movie. I was hoping we'd get to work on the movie. Um, but it is now official. I'm, I'm in the studio with the headphones on recording Kion and Haruhi Suzumiya, the movie. So um, I think everyone can look forward to that in the future. Excellent. Uh, I, I'm looking forward to hearing you reprise that role because I think you bring a uh, a dry humor and uh, humanity to Kion that I think is essential to his character, and it, it just really shines through in the English dub, and I really enjoy it. Oh well, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, not not at all. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure you hear that a lot. Anyway, um, with that, I think we're gonna let you go. But Crispin, thank you so much for joining us. It has been a tremendous honor. You bet. Thanks so much for having me. 